Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And this week, it's our turn to have a conversation with somebody. And I'm delighted that the person that we're going to speak to today is actually Mervyn Dinnan. Now, if you're not familiar with Mervyn, I'd be quite surprised because he's got quite a following. But he's an HR and talent trends analyst. He's an author, he's a speaker, and he's one of these top tech influencers has been named in various magazines as somebody who's a thought leader around the area of HR and talent recruitment and tech. I always enjoy talking to Mervyn because he brings the most up-to-date analysis to life and we had a great conversation. Unfortunately, the ambience once again was somewhat noisy because we caught up at the Festival of Work. That said, I did feel that the conversation was sufficiently of interest that rather than us ditching it, we have chosen to clean up the sound as much as possible and um, put this out as a podcast. So I hope you do find it uh, interesting. The sound improves as the podcast goes on. And uh, again, do give us some feedback. What I would say is uh, we've got a LinkedIn group now, which is growing called the HR Uprising LinkedIn group. If you've got views and you want to feedback on the content that we put over in podcasts or a subject that you'd like us to cover, please do join that group and join the conversation because we'd really welcome that, that feedback. So I hope you enjoy the podcast and thanks to Mervyn. Hello and welcome to the HR Uprising podcast for this week. Um, and I'm really pleased to have a guest speaker who we've used at one of our conferences before. And uh, I know he's a an author and he's going to explain in more detail how he defines himself in a moment. Uh, but I'm really delighted to have Mervyn Dinnan here. I seem to be making a habit of doing podcasts in really noisy places, so I apologise for the background noise. We're actually at the Festival of Work and uh, Mervyn's a very busy man, so I wanted to take advantage, having just heard, heard his speech, um, heard, heard your talk and uh, find out a little bit more about that and other things that you're involved in, Mervyn. So uh, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Thank you, Lucinda. My name's Mervyn. Um, I believe that uh, what I do is commonly now known as being a slashy, um, as you, in that is I'm a slushy, right? slashy, as okay. in slash. I'm a oh. <laughs> writer slash analyst slash blogger slash author slash consultant. Um, and when I get good at it, I might get a portfolio career out of it. Oh, so that's your LinkedIn um, title sorted. We're well, not quite yet, but yeah. <laughs> So what I do, I suppose there's three or four things I do. I work with uh, HR and recruitment technology companies to research ongoing trends impacting the attraction, hiring, development, retention of people, um, uh, particularly currently researching digital uh, transformation and how that is impacting things. Um, author of one book called Exceptional Talent, sorry, co-author of one book called Exceptional Talent with a guy called Matt Alder. And we are halfway through the second book, uh, Digital Talent. Uh, which is due for publication December this year, but uh, we'll see if that is met. I remember speaking uh, to you when you were writing your last one, and uh, yes. uh, you, the journey is it's a journey of being an author, right? It is. So. Um, I write blogs, I write uh, kind of, um, 
white papers, uh, research-based, uh, insightful white papers, um, and um, generally speak at conferences and, and, and hang around, and apparently I'm one of the world's top 100 HR tech influencers. Well, there you go, and I'm honoured to have you on our webcast. Thank you very much. Um, so I suppose in terms of the focus of today, because actually, as we said earlier, there's so many things that we could talk about. Um, and due to the fact that the well time and the environment, we thought we'd just maybe focus on a few key trends that we thought we'd talk about, maybe a bit about digital trends, which you're saying are really important. And along with the whole theme of the HR uprising, which you know this is what we're about, how can we be seen as being more strategic? Should we be, what would be your um, advice be to HR professionals who want to rise up, be more strategic, and I guess therefore we need to be better at using the spotting trends, accessing them and, and going with them? That was wow, there's a there lot there. Yeah, okay, should I break it down? <laughs> yeah, no, it's okay, it's okay. Um, well, uh, if I start, what am I doing here today? Uh, I've given uh, a session or I've given a, a talk um, around uh, HR digitization, HR process digitization. So uh, the, the, the benefits to the HR team of uh, automating, digitizing, I suppose some fairly basic HR processes. Um, and what was interesting was in, in doing the research for uh, the book Digital Talent, um, I, was, I did, did a series of interviews with employees as well as HR people. And I found that a lot of them get very, very frustrated by the technology at work. Uh, a lot of them feel that um, the technology is, is, is not chosen with them in mind. In fact, PwC did a big piece of research late 2018, and they found something like 90% of the C-suite say that they buy technology with the employee in mind. But only 53% of the employees felt that the technology they use was bought with them in mind. Um, we, we just automate the processes that exist rather than creating whole new ones. So something, I gave an example during my session, um, of an interview I did, uh, something simple like reclaiming expenses. And I interviewed three or four um, employees from one business in the hospitality sector. And they said that, that, that which is a very simple process to digitize, um, that, that since it's changed, it's like almost impossible. And in fact, the youngest employee, the millennial, who we're supposed to be attracting, who we're doing all this for, allegedly, said that, that she thought that they'd made it complex on purpose to stop people reclaiming expenses unless it was a significant amount. Wow. So having created a process to help obviously us with data for, for cost allocation and stuff, um, we, we, we've given our employees the impression that we're actually trying to hit, hit them in the pocket. Um, Which is completely, the buy-in is going yeah. to be completely the opposite from what they want. Yeah. So just on that, that particular example, because I, I heard you say that and the thing, I thought, oh, that's classic, isn't it? Where communication at the top of a change initiative has been completely interpreted differently because of maybe how it's rolled out, how it's been communicated. Did you say that, that was because they had automated an existing process or had they tried to change it? Well, they had bought a bit of a bespoke package. Um, but they, they, yeah, I mean, they could have, I, my understanding is they could have made that process a lot easier, but they had put certain classifications in. I know somebody complained that there are like 40 different cost classifications there never used to be. Um, and it's kind of invariably your, your claim online gets rejected because you need to use a different code or something. And that's the kind of thing never happened before. Um, so maybe that beforehand I would have uh, just handed a petty cash slip in going back many years 
um, and said what it was for, and it was up to accounts to allocate it. it yeah, now it's down to the employee to work out the allocation, and there can be so many. And when you've got hundreds of cost centres and things, I can yes. see how that would be a nightmare. Because that that's the interesting thing. If we kind of, I always want to try and make this quite pragmatic. I can see entirely how that would happen, and we sometimes have that with clients who say, "We've got this process, and you've got to completely change this system in order to fit this process." As opposed to going, "Actually, is this the right?" And then 18 months later, they go, "People hate it." Like, well, actually, it's not the system; it's the process, yeah. um, because you've not thought about what people want. So I'm wondering if there is something about us having to think better when we put something in place and, and maybe think that's an opportunity if you're bringing technology in to see if it actually is going to improve improve the process. Yes. Um, it's an opportunity to freshen it up rather than it is. I remember, existing. I remember an example, I've forgotten uh, who was giving it, um, at a conference in the US a few years ago when they were talking about uh, their payroll system. That's a big one, obviously, going online to get your pay slips where you used to be handed them. Um, and the, the, a lot of people, when, when they're earning the same, if they're not getting different commission and stuff every month, it's pretty much the same every month. Yeah. So they only go in every three, four months to get pay slips to maybe check a deduction or something. Um, but because people weren't logging into this system uh, to, uh, all the time, every time they logged in three, four months later, they had to change their password. As, firstly, how many passwords can you create? And secondly, it makes it an incredible faff. Um, and you know, it's it, it, again, you've digitised a process barrier. that people are only going to use every few months. Yeah, it's a complete barrier. Um, I used to work for a large organisation, do training for them, who will remain nameless, and they had a, a learning um, platform that you'd go in and you had to log in. But the problem was the programme only happened every three months, and their policy was that you change your password every three months, which basically meant that every single time you logged in, you're changing your password. It's just a barrier to uh, make it work. That's, I suppose, I'm not sure that's about us working with IT to say you can give us some flex on the systems. I mean, those are two very, I suppose, simple, straightforward uh, examples. I mean, in the main, uh, what we tend to find is that most employees are very happy with digital interactions for things like payroll, for you know, scheduling leave, for benefits, checking information, certainly for the whole hiring process, you know, receiving offers, signing it digitally online and things like that. Um, and are, are fairly happy for digital interactions for most things, where it becomes a bit personal. So I suppose performance management, for example, they, they, they do, I mean, still about half are happy to do a lot of that digitally. But uh, I suppose you, you will have more who will prefer to, to obviously have the human interaction there. And I suppose, is it about having the balance between the two, of having digital and it is, people? It is, it is, yeah. It, it, it's kind of, it, it, it's, it's, I suppose, automating what makes sense to automate. I think there's a, I used a quote from uh, Brian Kopp, who's VP of Gartner, uh, and something he said, they launched their uh, executive priorities report a couple of months ago. And his quote was about how employees want their nine to five to resemble their five to nine. I mean, I, don't I really think, like that quote. Yeah, I don't think he's the first person to ever say that, but it's kind of, yeah, the, 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 the five to nine is, is full of kind of seamless digital interactions, prompts, notifications, they don't have to think about things, you know, Gmail auto-completes their emails for them. Um, and whereas they go to work and they are kind of faced with systems that are not that intuitive and not that seamless. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of getting to the point where it is, a, it is one kind of seamless life, I suppose. 
But we do expect to have technology at the levels. Our, our expectations are high because for what you're used to on your mobile yeah. and things like that. And actually for HR technology in particular, that is quite a stretch to necessarily catch up with that experience. And I think that's what oh, people yeah. want next. I mean, I, 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 giving the example of expenses and stuff, I mean, quite often where, where you hear these, it's because the process that was there before wasn't very good. Um, and all you've done is, is digitise or automate a not very good that process, process yeah. so that's a not very good digital experience. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, the other thing that your book, both your books are about talent, right? um, various un un elements of them, um, and I know you've got a lot of expertise in sort of talent acquisition and recruitment, and you mentioned in the talk I heard a bit about talent onboarding and that being an area that you think perhaps is a next natural stage digitised. Want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, I'm not so about the, the next natural stage. I think it, it's hugely important. And I think it is the HR, I hate the word process, because process sounds very mechanical. So HR activity, um, which needs investment. Um, particularly as the hiring process is now speeded up. I gave the example this morning that making an offer to having everything signed and sealed is like half an hour now because the offer goes digitally, it's accepted, the contract goes over, it's, it's electronically signed immediately, and that's done. No two weeks of, have you put it in the post yet? Did we use the right postage and all that? Um, and so that means that, that, that actually from that moment, like almost half an hour possibly after having received the offer and accepted it, um, you need to start the process by which somebody joins your business. And I think that historically onboarding started on your first day. So you turn up for a job, you might have met the person you were working for and a couple of colleagues and that's it. You might have been sent a brochure or something to read through, but then you started being inducted. Um, but most people nowadays expect information. So they want to join. Day one is actually their first day of, of, of working. Um, and onboarding, I know some people find it a very clunky expression. Uh, and it sounds quite mechanical, but actually it's the journey by which you take an interested candidate and develop them into a productive employee. And whether that's over a period of one month, three months, six months, um, that's the way you do it. If you, look at the, if you look at the main reasons why people leave jobs in the first three to six months, it's always the job isn't what they expected it to be, um, they hadn't really met their team and don't feel they get on with their colleagues or their manager, they don't uh, feel that they're, they're not comfortable in the culture of the organisation or they can't see any room to grow and develop. Now quite often this is because a very overzealous hiring manager has seen what they see as the perfect candidate and oversold the job um, and brushed over the fact that the job being offered is one that the candidate has already done before. And, and fills it with lots of opportunities for future progression that don't really exist. Um, but onboarding deals away with that. There's no shocks on day one, there's no surprises. Um, information it, it can be passed digitally. I mean, a lot of this is now app-based. Uh, the new employee can access lots of information. They can, there's videos of senior directors talking about the legacy of the business, where they've come from, describing their first day. You can be socially connected to your new team. Uh, and start understanding what their hobbies and interests are and, and, and forming relationships. You can interact with other new starters, so you've got kind of a little collegiate group there who are going through the same thing together. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just makes it a lot easier. Um, you don't need to sit someone in a classroom on day one and go through health and safety and 
here's a contract to sign and, and it, it should be the beginning of, of the, the working relationship. The experience. And providing you cover what the role is in that space, then there'll be no shocks. Yeah, yeah. And is that, would you, is that the candidate experience magical term that you're talking about there? You know, this, another one of these HR jargons that you hear, candidate experience, is that part of that? Is that um, all of it? Or? Well, it's kind of, I mean, it is they're one They're not experience. a candidate anymore, then? Yes, they're not. I mean, the, 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 the first book was called Exceptional Talent, and that was based around the concept of the new talent journey. So the new talent journey is really that, that all the stages that used to be things HR did to people have an ad, you know, have have a vacancy, advertise it, interview people, make an offer, start them, review them after three months probation, performance manage them after yeah. a year, after two years promote them, and then release them. It used to be a series of different processes. It's actually it's one ongoing journey. journey. To the employee, it's just one ongoing journey that tech underpins. Yes. They don't see the break. They don't see the join. And so, really, this onboarding just flows seamlessly from the. I mean. Candidate experience is the experience the candidate gets applying to join your company and being taken through the interview process. And onboarding is the start of the, if you like, employee experience, which is, I suppose, what most people talk about in HR now, uh, because it is the differential. It's the reason people join you, the reason they stay. And as you saw in my session this morning, uh, only one in five employees think that the, the way the company describes what they're like as an employer actually matches up with the experience of working there. Um, and so the onboarding to make it Only seamless, yeah, don't. don't. I mean, that, that doesn't think it's bad, but it's just they think that the company maybe overstates in a lot of cases what the employee experience is like. But this gets checked out. I mean, there's plenty of research that shows, I've been involved with some, um, that shows that candidates who are applying for a job are already checking you out before they apply. They're looking at review sites, they're going on Google, they're trying to get an idea of what you're like to work there. And candidates who drop out of an interview process, uh, where you're taken through, through to second, third interview and they drop out, uh, the number one reason is it's taking too long and they've already got an offer from somewhere else. Number two reason is they've heard or read something about the company and they've changed their mind. And actually, that some I know you said sometimes it's signed, sealed and delivered in a short period of time, but I know sort of financial services industries, it can take three months for them to get the FCA checks through. So actually, people have got time to go off the boil in that period of time or find something. You think you've got your perfect candidate and you've lost them. So it's, you have yes, to be able to keep the, them interested yeah, in that space. Yeah, the reference checking uh, and security checking stuff, obviously that is an issue. I know there are companies who seamlessly do this in the background um, and who, who, who make it as, as quickly as possible. Um, but there are some industries where clearly you can't shortcut this. Uh, but for, for most of the roles that, that probably listeners are recruiting, it, it probably can be done relatively. I don't mean you make a quick decision, No. but the process can move with pace. But quite often, and I know we've been guilty of it ourselves, you, you make the decision, you've got the candidate, okay, phew, right now I can go back to the day job. But actually you've got that six weeks, three months, whatever that period is, where if you are doing something in that period of time, you can see how you can accelerate their productivity. I mean, I always think it's kind of crazy that you spend all this money on recruitment and then we kind of don't necessarily do anything with them when they join in terms of managing them well, giving them, they stay, sit next to somebody, listen to what it is that they're, they're doing and shadow them for two weeks and they're bored yeah. senseless. Yeah, I mean, part of that is because um, recruitment teams obviously have their metrics. Uh, the majority of them are targeted on cost per hire and time per hire. Um, loosely they are supposed to be rewarded on quality of hire 
but there's no obvious single measure of quality of hire. Uh, quality of hire can be down to an individual manager, can be down to an individual director. You can have somebody who stays with you a long time without ever pulling up any trees or anything. You might think, well, that's quality hire. They've been there for, here for three years. Or you might find somebody comes in, does fantastic things in a year and then moves on. Some people would say that was a poor hire because they're gone within a year. Others would say, but look at what they achieved. So because quality of hire is something that's a little bit difficult to measure and quantify, each company will look at it a different way. Um, the pressure isn't on to get people productive straight, straight away. Whereas if there was a measure for quality of hire, which was linked to productivity, output, and the speed, I suppose, with which people, I hate the expression, hit the ground running, but I mean, that's the obvious one, then a lot more would be invested in this area. So, I mean, I hadn't actually thought of that before, but actually, again, taking it as learning points we could do in the business, really what we're saying is that there's, there's no strategic link between the recruitment team's KPIs and, let's say, just regular generic, you know, the onboarding, there's people induction, which might be learning and development, and then regular people management, when actually that's an entire experience. And from a company's point of view, the cost of that hire and the cost of how long people stay, you know, the ROI, are different. Um, so just thinking that's not joined up. So from an HR point of view, there would be a benefit in joining that up, the cost, cost of bringing people in, but actually taking that journey and investing in that journey beyond it. And do you yeah, have some... Yeah, it is assumed, it's assumed that if, if uh, it's not a poor quality hire, but if something goes wrong and they leave within a few months or something, it's a recruitment problem. Which you've just said it isn't, for well, four reasons, it, hardly well, ever. It can be, but I mean, it, 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 it's more likely to be um, down to the onboarding, yeah. or at least if there is a recruitment, if the recruitment process was at fault and maybe identified the wrong person, that's a whole other podcast yes. uh, about how we select. Um, but if it is, onboarding will probably iron that out because before the person starts, they're going to say, hold on a minute, this isn't, this isn't what I thought I signed you up for. You can still get your money back from the recruitment agency at that point. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> you, well you haven't paid if they haven't started. Uh, if you started earlier, they wouldn't have paid. But I mean, I'm, I'm not thinking so much ages as I'm thinking of kind of an in-house recruitment team, uh, yeah. talent acquisition team. Who And, and again, it's a grey hole. It, 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 it's this big gap between recruit the talent acquisition team and the HR team. Talent acquisition think HR responsible for onboarding. HR kind of think talent acquisition responsible for keeping in touch with the candidate before they start and making sure that they've got everything they need. Uh, and, and in a lot of organisations, I'm sure lots of listeners will say we're not like that, but in the research I've done over the years, a lot of organisations will admit that, that, yeah. that that is one of those big grey areas. We're all, it's very easy to get siloed, and that's quite a good takeaway out of this, trying to avoid that in those, those areas. Just briefly, because obviously we're going to move on um, from from this room shortly. Yes. Um, in terms of have you, in terms of the research you've done, have you got? I remember, I remember years ago when I did my MSc. I think they were saying about the numbers of people that left after a poor onboard induction. It was called process. That actually, the, your experience in the first six weeks directly linked how long you stayed with an organisation. Have you? What what are the kind of rates of turnover or attrition? Did you come up with any stats on that? I'm putting you on the spot, I'm aware. You so. are putting me off the spot. Uh, you can tell me later if there is yeah, any. Yeah, off the top of my head, I can't really think of one. Um, but I've got lots of stats in my head at the moment uh, around this, this area. Um, I think that, that I mean, the, 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 the fairly standard, however you slice and dice it, is one in four people will leave in the first six months yeah. of starting a new job. It's also relatively high for senior hires as well. 
and that's another again another whole different set of reasons but linked to onboarding a lot of people don't bother to onboard senior hires mm -hmm. Because they think, well, you're a manager, you'll pick it up. You've just got to come uh, and hit the ground running and yes. change the world. But, but the number one reason why managers don't stay more than six months is that they didn't really understand the business model of the business they were joining. They didn't understand what their remit was going to be. And if you think, how can you bring in a manager at that kind of package who, who has been through the whole process selection from directors, who doesn't actually understand what your business model is and what's expected of them and their team? Uh, wow, interesting. Yeah. Okay, well, I know we could talk and talk, yes. and uh, maybe I, I am also very interested in what could be a different podcast, as you said, the whole sort of analysing. I was talking to someone literally yesterday about that, how do you identify someone as a good fit? So maybe that is a subject for another podcast. Um, just if we were just to summarise in terms of this context of HR trends, if you are giving advice to HR professionals out there as to how they can be seen as more strategic and add more value, as we're all trying to do, and we're continually told that we're not doing quite enough yet. Is there anything you'd recommend specifically from your research or that comes to mind that we should be working on? Well, the first thing, I suppose, plays into what I was talking to today, is to make sure you can automate, digitise, whatever word you want to use, uh, as much as you can. Um, HR productivity is key, and you need as much time as possible to be strategic, to keep on top of trends, to understand how this seamless journey from candidate to new employee to senior to works. Um, but if you're bogged down with case management, you're bogged down with people's holiday requests, you're bogged down with kind of coaching managers in how to give feedback at performance review, and um, it's very difficult. And uh, the, 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 it was interesting. I used a couple of quotes today of, from senior HR directors who said where they still used paper records for a lot of these things. And it just piles up and up and up and up. It's put to one side for the, 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 the Friday afternoon filing session that never comes. Because you get to Friday afternoon, right, we've got some time, let's get rid of this. And before you know it, manager runs in, someone's just resigned, how do we keep them? And it, it, it's all... And who wants to do that anyway? Yes. That's the interesting point there, and when so you said time. that, sorry, in your talk, yeah, it is time, but it's a chicken, I think that's a chicken and an egg challenge that HR have got because in order for them to digitise things they've got to make a business case that to the business to give invest in technology to automate whatever process it is that they need to automate and I've found time and again that actually if you say oh well, HR productivity at a board level is one of the key outputs they go so what <laughs> they can do the admin you know, it's, I, I think that's maybe being able to make a business case is one of the biggest challenges for HR to, to get that investment. In the report that I've worked on um, two things came out there some HR directors said that they the business case the difficulty making the business case was eased slightly by GDPR because of the financial risks of non-compliance. So compliance, they won't, people won't do it for people reasons or engagement, yes, that's not strong enough, they do it because they have to. Yes. Having done it. Yep. And the other one is to actually understand employee experience, actually understand kind of the importance of engagement, retention, development. I mean, the number one reason people join and stay is the chance to learn new skills, grow and develop as an individual. Uh, and if they stay beyond the first six, 12 months, the reason they leave will always be because they can't see any room for growth. Yeah. Um, so for HR to be able to make the business case, they've got to show the importance of actually investing their time in the employee experience and giving employees the experience that, that, that is seamless. And again, it makes sense that if you make that the connection between 
paying money to recruit people and then keeping them, there's definitely a cost benefit of, of it. And that's, oh, that's really interesting. And there's quite a few stats out there that, that um, if people want to hit either you or me up after this podcast, I can oh, yeah, direct, direct them to it. There's a lot of research that shows the cost of a bad hire, the cost of hiring. Uh, bringing in somebody who leaves within the first year is huge because you've got, yeah, the, the, it's not just the cost of replacement and the fact that you've paid someone's salary and then you've got, you've got to cover the role again. It's actually what it does for the rest of the team. Yeah. And people don't really ever quantify what happens in a team if people keep coming and going in terms of disengagement, in terms of people being unfocused. It's really, and it's really hard for everyone else because they've got to train them up and then they have to pick up their workload. It's really, really demoralising. People think, what is wrong? Is it me? Yeah, yeah. I think it's okay here, but everybody else that joins yeah. seems to leave. Yeah, no, it's not good. Okay, so unfortunately we've got to cut it short, but it's been really, really good conversation. Um, what I'll say for the benefit of the, the podcast is that we do do really comprehensive show notes and I'll get links from you Mervyn to various research and website and things like that because I know you've got some great, well we've talked about some great statistics there so if people yes. want to get access to that we'll put in the show notes links to things there they can find more information if they want it okay. and obviously we'll put your contact details in there as well. Happy to do that. Lovely, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, a conversation with Mervyn Dinnan. Hopefully the sound effects calmed down and you managed to get value out of it. I found it a really scintillating conversation. So hope that that came over during the um, recording. And next week we will be looking at evidence-based performance management. So that will be uh, an explanation of some research review that we'll go through where we look at the eight different aspects of performance management or around managing performance that have been proven to have the greatest correlation in driving high performance. I hope you'll tune in to listen to us there. Please do if you're getting value out of these podcasts. Talk to us on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a review uh, and you know, get in touch if there's a topic that you'd like us to cover. Thanks as ever for listening. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.